and take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2 before you sit down. We want to encourage you to follow your Savior unwaveringly today. This is what this message is about. He unwaveringly followed the Lord, and now we too in our sanctification learn to unwaveringly follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text is chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 this morning. Follow along as I read, and then we'll sit down and delve into this text. Verse 12 says this, Oh, then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the great reminder and song today of our unwavering Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what you called him to do and he completed it. And Lord, we are eternally grateful for that. We thank you that salvation is complete in Christ. We do not add to his perfect work. There is nothing we can do, Lord, to add to that work. But now we let that finished work drive us, compel us, Lord, to live lives that are blameless before you. So Father, we ask that you would give us great understanding through your Holy Spirit, through the word of God, of how you want us to live this life. In Jesus' name, amen. These are remarkable verses as you look at this text, particularly following off of the verses of last week or the last few weeks. Paul said an attitude that needs to be in us in verse 5, that we were to have an attitude of Christ, be like him, in this attitude of selflessness, this attitude of humility, and he lays out the beautiful relationship that God has with man, particularly in his role as the God-man. Fully man, but fully God, so that he could accomplish all that we need. And as we looked at it last week, we wound up with these verses 9 through 11 of seeing the exalted Lord. Because he accomplished the work, God exalted him and gave him a name that is Lord above all names. And at the mention of his name, every Buddy, on earth and heaven, below earth, all the angelic world, all created world will confess him to be Lord. So in verse 12, Paul starts to hitchhike on this thought. It's an amazing thought because he wants us to springboard off this truth. If he really is Lord and you and I are really going to bow the knee to him, there is a way we should live. There is a way that should reflect this great work within our life. We look at the term sanctification in in really two different roles that we see the word sanctification throughout the scriptures. And let me explain them both before we get into this text any deeper. 
We look at first sanctification as initial sanctification. In the word sanctification, we get hagias, holiness from it. Set apart is the word uh, from the Greek term. And it means that God in a particular time, when he saved you, when he opened your mind that you were a sinner and you needed his son's salvation, he took you from the world, you belonged to Satan, you belonged to the world system, he took you out of that world and he set you apart and he says, you're mine. That's initial sanctification. It goes along with justification. At that time, God justified you. He declared you righteous. He took his son's perfect righteousness and he put it on you. He took your sins and he put them on his son. We call that imputation of righteousness. Very, very important word. So we're, made ju- we're justified, but we are also sanctified at that time. There are two different terms, not the same teaching, but, but parallel. You can't have sanctification without justification. Is that understood? Okay, good, thank you. I appreciate that yup over there. I feel like I'm getting somewhere. All right, so initial sanctification when God says, you're mine, you now belong to me. Do you get that? Isn't that beautiful? But the Bible also talks about what we refer to in the theological world as a progressive sanctification. There is a time for us to grow in our faith. To, to not just be infants anymore. The Bible says things like this, that you start on milk, but work your way to the meat of the word of God. If our children never grew, if they were just babies and they stayed there forever, it, they're precious, but you do want them to grow, don't you? You feed them, right? And, and they grow and eventually they grow out of milk and they work their way to that horrible baby food in the jars and, and, then, they, and then they eventually start eating off the table, Right? And pretty soon they're eating out of house and home and they're leaving for college. But I digress. Um, they grow, don't they? The Bible is very clear that Christians are to grow. And we're to grow in the right motivation. So when we think of initial sanctification, we think of verses like this. By this will, this is Hebrews 10.10, 10, we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the blood of the Jesus Christ once and for all. So there's initial sanctification. The will of God is that he takes you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, sets you apart for his glory. Progressive sanctification, we hear verses like this. For this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. Stay out of immorality. Follow the Lord. The verses go on in 1 Thessalonians 4. Second. Uh, Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 but we all that's those who have initial sanctification been justified with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord now listen to this are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory uses a present tense participle there continual sense you're being transformed so he saves you and he grows you into the image of Christ that's his goal he doesn't want you to stay where you're at. He wants to progress you. Hope you love the Lord Jesus more this year than you did last year. I hope you know the Bible better than you did last year. This is progressing in the faith. Understanding the God who saved you better and better each and every day, each and every week, each and every year. Progressing in our faith. Now, progressive, progressive sanctification is a great restoration project, right? Right? Now, men get this. If we get an old car that we really like, it's probably got some rust and some problems on it because it's old, right? So we got to take it in and we got to tear it down and we got to strip it down and we got to grind on the frame and we got to rebuild this thing and make it shine again. And that's a little bit what the Lord does with us. 
Once we're saved, we start seeing things we never saw before. There is a major dent in my fender. I have some massive habits that do not glorify the Lord. And the more I spend time around the Lord, the more I want to deal with that stuff. See, this is progressive sanctification. We begin to say, oh Lord, you died for that. I want to be free of that stuff. And we start giving up habitual sin. We start saying, Lord, will you give me victory over that? And we long to be more like our Savior. And so we progress. Now, I want to make a statement very clear here. We never miss with or mix in any way initial sanctification with progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification has nothing to do with our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. So we don't say, well, I'm sanctifying, justified if I do these things. Oh, now we've entered into works. You notice we start to take away what Jesus did if we say his initial work is not enough. So we want to be careful there. But we do want to talk about growing in the faith. And this is what I think Paul is talking about, particularly in these passages. Let me give you four or five thoughts here this morning to let you see where we're going to go with this. First of all, living our lives for him and through him. Living our lives for him and through him. Notice verse 12 and 13. He starts out this way after this great statement of every tongue's going to confess and every knee's going to bow to the glory of the Father because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be exalted. He says then, so then, or your Bible may say, therefore, my beloved. Now, there's some massive motivation for that therefore, isn't there? Don't, don't miss when there's a therefore. That means there's, it's resulting from something he just said, right? That's just good exegesis. That's good understanding of writing, right? So he says, look, Jesus is going to be proclaimed Lord of all. Your knees, the angels' knees, the demons' knees, every knee is going to bow and confess him as Savior. Therefore, do you see the power of that now? Therefore, if that's true, Hey, we got to do something about that, right? We've got to prepare ourselves for this life. Notice he uses the word, my beloved. Very enduring term. He talks this way consistently about the children of God. Paul uses these terms. He's beloved. He, he loves these people. And, and I think that's a wonderful term because you and I have people in our life we love and we want them to grow in their faith, don't we? So you understand what Paul's doing, right? You have children, you have young people in your life, you have family members who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You want them to grow. I don't think you're saved if you don't want them to grow, right? You don't want them to get into the things of the world and, and get lost. So Paul is, he, he takes this great point in, in 9 through 11 and says, oh my beloved, if this is true, press on, press on. Notice he says the next phrase, look at this. Just as you have obeyed, not only when I'm here, but, now notice a little phrase here, but much more when I'm gone, when I'm absent. What does that tell you about them? They're maturing. This group was maturing. They weren't the group that when the teacher's in the room, hey, everything's good. Teacher steps out, whoo-hoo, hey, let's play. Anybody ever been in a class like that? I think I probably wrecked a few classes like that. They're different now. When Paul's not there, they're still progressing in their faith. Their faith is not based on the Apostle Paul. They're not living a life because Paul's there and go, oh, hey, the Apostle's here. They're living for Jesus when the Apostle's not there. And Paul wants to recognize that. He, he wants people to know this is progression. They're growing in their faith. 
They're not tied to the preacher anymore. They're not hanging on every word that he has to say. They're actually studying themselves and they're growing. In fact, Paul uses the term much more, much more. See, the point here is God calls his believing children to joyful obedience. You catch the term I use there? Joyful obedience. Opposed to what? I have to? See, Paul's not calling us to, hey, you know, you know you're a Christian now. You know, don't eat, don't chew, whatever that saying is, don't go with girls to do. That, you know, all that kind of stuff. We get this list as Christians sometimes. Well, I can't do this and I can't. Hey, we have a joyful obedience of the Lord. We joyfully say no to the things of the world now. They're contrary to our Savior. We say no to things that he died for. Sin that caused his death on the cross. See, we joyfully do that. Not because we have to, but because we get to. I've said that for six years. Not because we have to, but because we, thank you. We get to. We get to live for the Lord. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, controls us. The Greek word means drives us. The love of Christ drives Scott. Put your name in there. And we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Oh, there's a driving influence now. It pushes us now to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says in the end of verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You go, Hold the phone, Scott. You just told us that there was no working for your salvation. You know the verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? There's no one who will boast before God, hey, look, I've worked out my salvation, here I am. So what does Paul mean here? Why does he use this term, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, the good news is we never verse pluck right? We don't just take one verse out as those that, are, that preach religion contrary to the Bible do. They take a verse and then they build some whole theology off of it that teaches you that you've got to work your way to heaven. We understand it in context, so let's look at verse 13 because the verse is explained. Notice what he says in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. Oh, that makes a little more sense. So here the Bible is saying, look, God is at work. I love that little phrase that starts verse 13. For it is God. For it is God. It's not you. It's God. He's at work. He's doing, most, he's doing the most glorious work in your life. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. He says things like that. He chose you before the foundations of the world that you would be holy and blameless. He chose you to be his adopted sons and daughters. He made you clean and brilliant before him through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was according to his intended will. He intended to do this. He's at work in you. He didn't save you and go, well, I took care of the hard stuff. You guys work out the rest of it. See you in heaven someday. That's not our Lord. From the time of your salvation, he enters your life and he never leaves you. He is with you constantly. He's pushing and guiding and he's with you when you're struggling. He's with you when you're not struggling. He is working out salvation through you. He is showing his good pleasure in your life. 
He does not abandon you. He never leaves you. Look at chapter, check at verse 13 with me. Just some thoughts here. First of all, notice his power. For it is God who works in you. The Greek word is an interesting word. In ergo, we get our English word energy from this word. In ergo means he is at in ergo in you. He's providing the energy a believer needs to obey. I really like that word. I didn't know that that's, that was the word when I came into this text. And I go, oh, he uses an ergo. That's really cool. I can get my mind around that. He gives me the energy to live for Jesus. Anybody ever run out of energy? Uh, I mean, I'm always out of energy, believe it or not. And, and then when it comes to dying to self, right? That's really hard, right? That's what we're really talking about when we follow Jesus is we die to self. It is this constant desire to live for the Lord Jesus, but there's a battle there that rages, and the Lord comes along and says, I'll give you the energy to live for me. Isn't that beautiful? People come up and say, Pastor, I just can't do it. Well, I got a verse that says you can. God says he'll work in you. He'll provide the energy it takes. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 5. You should write this verse down and look at it later. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our energy, our adequacy, our ability to accomplish this life comes right from God. Listen to Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Because I know some of you are going, look, pastor, you don't know my life. You don't know how difficult it is. The Bible's saying he can do more than you ask or think. Do you believe that? We believe it to say. We believe it on Sunday school. It's on Monday school we have the hard time believing it, isn't it? That's when it's hard, right? That's where this verse has to be memorized. And you have to say, God, I believe that you can do more than what I ask or think. According to your power that works within us, Ephesians says. That energy According to that strength that you come and you accomplish things that I could not do on my own. To him be glory. Colossians 1 verse 29. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to the power which mightily works in me, Paul says. God's working. So, both his power works and you notice his possession. Look at the rest of the verse in verse 13. Who works, who is at work in you. Look at that little prepositional phrase there. In you. This is the Lord taking possession of you. Do you know that? He possesses you. Not in a goofy R-rated type of movie possession. <laughs> but, but a possession. He owns us. He indwells us. The Lord himself, God Almighty, through his spirit, comes and takes over residency in our life. This is his address. However you want to write that out, it's Scott Avenue, whatever it is. He lives within you. That's where he possesses you. He owns you. He indwells you. The Bible is very clear on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, now he uses a phrase out of the Old Testament, probably used about a dozen times in the Old Testament. He says this, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6 to the believers in the New Testament church. 
I will dwell in them, I'll walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. That's great news. So we're not working out our salvation like, okay, well, let's get this done. He's doing it. He's doing the work. He's providing the energy. He's possessing you to accomplish this. And then third, look at the purpose here. Verse 13, he's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's his purpose, to his will. It's a beautiful word in the Greek. It, it is this word that, that says God has a will about him. He has a desirous will. We see it all through the scriptures. And he wants to do his work in you to bring himself good pleasure. Now, now think about that. God says, I love, put your name in there, and I want to accomplish something in them that'll give me great pleasure. That's astounding to me. It's astounding to me, a 50-year-old man that was on his way to hell at, at, at a very young age, at, at conception, God rescues, takes and says, I want to bring pleasure to myself through you. That's my will. I want to bring glory to myself through you. Me? God, you hung the stars and the moon and you named them. You, you, have, you, you know all things. And yet you want to find pleasure in each one of your children? See, that's astounding. That's what he means. I'm, he's working out the salvation in us. It's not something to be trifled with. God's at work. Let me show you a great verse. Go to Hebrews. I want to put you to get your finger on this one. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Some of these I want to... I want you just to see. Some I want to quote because I don't have time to get there. I want you to write them down. But there's certain verses I want to get your little finger on here. Look at chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. I love the rustling of pages and the swipe of an iPad. Listen to verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, the, that's, that's Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, now look at verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead, brought about this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and brought us through that, says he wants to equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Wow. He wants to work in us those things that are pleasing in his sight. See, God did not just save you to hold dirt down. Well, is not going to come back? He wants you to live a life. He wants to work in you that brings glory and pleasing to him. He wants you to bring glory to himself at your job. Not at somebody else in the pew's job, at your job. In your house, in your marriage, in your children. He wants to work this out. That's pleasing to him. Back to our text. Now when you come back to verse 12, you begin to understand what this means. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We give it to God. We say, God, take over. You're mighty God. The fear and trembling comes from verse 11. He's going to be the one that every knee will bow. 
There's an awe of that. That's the idea. There's an awe. There's a trembling in that and going, wow, this isn't just I'm bowing down before some president of a set of states. I'm bowing down before the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's the same one who's working in you. I, I marvel at it. I marvel that he would do these things. And so when you put all that together, you begin to understand that Jesus Christ is doing work that, that's amazing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we know very well where, where, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, lest you would stand before him and boast in some way. But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. What? You mean he's, a, he's crafting something? It's a term of, of a craftsman who crafts out something to fit perfectly in that place. You, you mean God is at work? I am his workmanship. He's crafting something to bring glory to himself? Yeah. I tremble over that. That's an awe thing to me. When he could have let me go to hell and he'd been just as justified. But he didn't. And I, I bow the knee to those things. Second, go back to our text and look at the hindrances in verse 14. There are hindrances to our sanctification. It's interesting that he goes right to these verses. Look at this. It says, do not do all things without grumbling or disputing. The first thing I want you to see is that this is an imperative. The main verb is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Like, hey, think about not being a whiner. It's not that at all. It's literally, don't be a whiner. Don't grumble and complain. Gugosmus is the word for grumble. Even gugosmus kind of sounds grumbling, doesn't it? Gugosmus, when you try to pronounce it. It's where the word came from. The English word grumble came from this word. And it, and it literally means that you not only have a grumble, What's the word I want? Gretel, you gruddle through things. You mumble through things. But it's your lifestyle. You have a negative response to something that was pleasant. Instead of seeing that the sky is beautiful blue, you see one cloud and say, it's going to rain. I had a neighbor like that, a cattle rancher. I tried everything I could to be positive with the man. I mean, isn't that a beautiful sky? He goes, it's horrible. It's, gonna never, it's not going to rain or crops are going to die. Okay, I'll have to try another avenue. Scrumble. Grumble and complain. It's, it's, it's always being inconvenient, always being disab- uh, disappointed, uh, arising, all arising from a self-centered notion of way you think things ought to come. Paul says, you want to ruin? You want to not find joy? Do you want to not progress in your faith? Be a grumbler. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You've got to see this. I, I use this text because it sums up most of the Pentateuch. And it's fascinating. He writes in the New Testament. Look at verse 6 with me. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. What a powerful set of verses. Paul says this. Now these things happened as an example for us. That's New Testament church. That's you and I today. So that we would not crave evil things as they craved evil things. Uh Uh-oh, he's talking about somebody else as an example to us. Grumblers. 
Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Verse 8, nor let us act immoral, immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's Numbers chapter 25. When they began to take women from another tribe that God said from another people as a godless people and take their gods and take their women and he wiped out thousands of them. Then he says verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some did and were destroyed by the serpents. That's Numbers 21. Lord, you brought us out of Egypt where the grave's not good enough? Grumbling, complaining, this stupid manna, we're tired of it. God rained bread out of heaven to feed his people. He flew in meat, literally, with quail. And they mocked him and mocked his servant Moses. Look at verse 10, here's my word. Nor grumbled as some of them did, and the destroyer came and destroyed them. Verse 10, number 16, that's Korah's group that came up against Moses. You know what God did with them? Anybody? Opened the ground and swallowed them. Everything they owned and all their people swallowed them, closed the ground underneath them. I think Paul, when he says, don't be a grumbler, we probably should listen. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will allow you not to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with a temptation or testing is the idea here. You'll be able to find a way of escape and you'll endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. You know, when you and I lust over our own wills, where our wills are so important to us, it is idolatry. We worship something greater than what God wants us to do. And Paul says, put an end to this. So this, this is a hindrance to our sanctification. The next word in verse 14, back in our text, is the word that we get our word, English word dialogue from. But here it's used in a negative sense. It's the don't dialogue in a negative sense. It has the idea of questioning, doubting, judging motives, disputing over the truth. The word is used of one who argues within the scriptures. Argues, doesn't believe what they're being taught, fights over things. In essence, this person is unteachable is the idea. You want to bring your progressive sanctification to a halt? Be unteachable. Don't hear the word of God and say, you know what? The Bible's talking to me this morning. You know, because our temptation is when we hear sermons, we hear the word of God taught, we go, man, I wish Fred was here. He really needs that. And you look around and you go, doggone it, he's not here again. That sermon was for him. No, it wasn't. It was for you. And, and, and see, we become unteachable and thus we hamper, we hindrance the growth in Christ. Thus, our growth in Christ is extremely limited. And we hinder the church. Now, now think about it. If you're not growing, what's happening to the church? 
If we're all members of one body, arms and feet and legs and eyes and ears and mouths and toes and all the things it takes up, if one part of the body says, you know what, I'm going to be selfish, I don't want to grow, I don't want to be obedient, (laughs) you don't say those words, you just do it, right? What happens to the body? Kind of like we have a stroke, don't we? Because part of the body says, I don't want to grow. I don't, I don't. It's always somebody else's fault. So you see the effects on this and why Paul's saying to the church of Philippi, don't grumble. Don't be disputing, fighting truth and and always judging everybody's motives. Good question to ask yourself. Am I teachable? Am I a teachable man, woman, boy, girl in this room? Do I hear the word of God and say, that's for me? That's for me. Third, the goal of our salvation, look at this beautiful text here, verse 15, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, now look at this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse, literally depraved is the word, generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So the goal of our sanctification is that we're lights shining for Christ in a dark world. Do grumblers and disputers shine for Christ? No, they can't. They're too worried about themselves. But that's not the goal. The goal is that we would shine, right? We would shine for Jesus. John Piper said this. He said, the brightness of your shining is the absence of your grumbling. The brightness of your shining is the absence of your grumbling. When we don't grumble and dispute, we can shine. We can shine like the Lord does. I think it's fascinating some of the terms he uses here. These are terms as blameless and innocent are spoken of our initial sanctification. When God saved us, Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, he now reconciled you in your fleshly body through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ's fleshly body. He, re, he reconciled us in order to make us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's initial sanctification. But Paul uses those terms in our progressive sanctification here. He wants us to be blameless and innocent. And what does he mean by that? It means it hurts the glory of the Lord when the world goes, look at those Christians. Oh, they say they do this, but they don't. Now, Christians are always called hypocrites, right? It's a good escape for the world not to have to deal with a God, not to have to deal with a Savior. But there are some times we give them plenty of ammo, don't we? We, blood-brought Christians, act like worldly people at times. We don't pursue the righteousness of the Lord. We don't run after the things that he would want us to do. Now remember, that's not some list. We're not here to say, here's a list of things we do. Remember, we let the love of God drive us. So don't come to me after service and say, Pastor, it's all right for me to go. (laughs) No, you talk to the Lord about that. And ask him, can I take you, since you indwell me and you possess me and you're with me, can I take you to this spot? That that would probably answer your question, wouldn't it? Lord, I, I, I... I want to be blameless in my life for you. Now, now, we're not talking about perfection here. In fact, this that you may be blameless and innocent is in um, a subjunctive verb, which, and it's in a middle voice, which means that we, can, we learn to live this life. 
It's a choice. We, we learn to live this life of blamelessness and innocence. We make choices that honor our Lord. In other words, Paul is asking us to live lives that live out our salvation. I love this little phrase. It says, children of God. Did you ever say this to your children when they go out? Hey, remember whose last name's on your back, right? If you have athletes, we talk about that. You know, hey, you're, you're, you're out there for Jesus Christ and you represent our family too. You know, it's important. Go, go, live and think about us as children of God. I'm adopted son of God. I'm in the family of God forever. He'll never reject me. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, my, he is my God. He is my Savior. I am in his family. In fact, I'm joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a place in heaven. First Peter says it's been reserved for me in heaven. God has built me a home in heaven. I will reside there with him. I represent the king. You represent the king. So you're children of God. And so we choose not through a list of things, but we choose to say, Lord, what honors you? The way I dress, the way I look, what I do, what I listen to, where I go, what I watch, what brings glory to you? And Paul's after the church. Hey, we're people of the king. Now, look, he knows it's tough because he says this in verse, in verse 15, you're living in a midst of crooked and perverse generation. The idea is twisted and depraved. These are strong words. God is not oblivious to where you're living. He knows everything the administrations of the world are passing. He knows in Indiana now that they try to protect somebody's business that they, that they don't get sued because they won't do a wedding of a homosexual couple. They passed a law there, and what happened? Now they're the bad guys. When you stand for, so right's becoming wrong, and wrong's becoming right. He, he knows all that. He knows all that's happening. He knows you live in a twisted and depraved world where they, when you say something is good, they say it's bad. He knows you're living in that. And he still says... Be my child in it. Be my child. Represent the family. When you're out there. John 17, his prayer before his, before his arrest, he says, Lord, keep them. They're in, the, they're in the world, but they're not of it any longer. I love that little phrase. I read that so often. I love that prayer in John 17. I know he's praying for me in John 17. And I love the fact that he knows that I'm in the world with all the twisted, perverted thinking the world has. He knows we're here. And he's working in us to get through this world with all its sick view of everything. So let me end this thought with this. I am not telling you that we are to be perfect Christians. I think what the Bible is saying is that there's consistency with us as we grow. I used to think like a child, act like a child, Paul says. But now that I'm old, I have grown. And so there's certain things we begin to put away and we say, you know, Lord, that's not pleasing to you. I need to put that stuff away. I want to appear, the word is plano, appear. Um, and then he uses the word where we get our word photo or photosynthesis from. I want to appear as light for you. It's the same word used to the planets and the stars and the skies. He wants us to shine in a dark world. 
And, and, and when we talked about this before, because it's amazing, you go into deep space and you show pictures, it's black as black out there, except for the planets and the stars that are shining from the original light, from, from the light that comes from the sun, they're reflecting in a dark, dark world. And I think that's what Paul's lo- looking at. He's looking at space and saying, wow, I want to be like that star right there, Lord. Out in the middle of this dark, depraved world, on the high school campus, the college campus, in Silicon Valley, I want to shine like a bright star for you, for your glory. And I think he's pushing. Fourth, the source of our sanctification. Look at this. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Oh, I'm, I'm running quickly out of time, but think about this. He says, here's the source of your sanctification, the word of life. This refers to the scriptures even more directly to the gospel. This is how you can do it. You can say, well, Scott, come on. This is, man, how do I die to self and run? You got the Bible. Darren said this morning, we should be reading of the Passion Week. Take right where I read in Luke 19 and work your way through the end of the text. All the way through Luke 19 this week and read it's the word of life. Jesus says this in John 6, the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Just a few passages later, he says, you have the words of life. Peter says, um, everybody's leaving him and Jesus says, you're going to leave too? And Peter says, no, where would we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. Acts chapter 5, verse 20, the angels told Peter and the apostles, they said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of life. That's the source. You have the source. And then one more verb I just want to hit before I leave this text. It says, holding fast. I really like this, and some of the guys might like this too. It literally means to fix your aim. Hmm. I think of shooting. Maybe you think of something else. But fix your aim on something. Fix your aim on the word of life. See, we sometimes fix our aim on what people think about us. Uh, that doesn't work very good. Or the, what the world's view is. Paul says, fix your aim on the word of life. On the word of God. Put it, put it right on there. Hold it on there. And you're going to be okay. In fact, Paul says, I'll know. If you fix your life on the word of God, not the word of Paul. Look, he's pushing them towards the scriptures. If you fix your life on the word of God... I won't have run this life in vain. Now that's kind of hard. He says, I, but I think I understand that. This toil or run in vain is the idea of, of man, I did all this and they faded away. See, pastors understand this. They see people who come to church and they, they espouse some things for a while and then they fall away. And you can't help but going, oh Lord, I felt like all that time I spent with them was in vain. Parents feel like this. You, you pour your time into your children and, and then they go off to university and then they come home and denounce that they're an atheist. That happens to Christian families. And you feel like you ran in vain. And Paul says, fix your eyes right on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your aim on him, on the gospel and the word of God. And then I, I won't even have to consider that I ran in vain. See, I get that. And I hope you get that. And, and the answer is, is focus it. And, and you moms, dads, us with children, we take their little faces and, and we point them, Here, here's Christ, here's the gospel. Go, run that way. That's what we do. And we give them to the Lord day after day after day. 
And those that maybe are in this room who have children that are wayward, you keep speaking the gospel to them. I beg you, preach the gospel to your children. When they get up and when they rise down, they may not come to Thanksgiving because they're going to preach to them again, but be gentle and, and, and be reverent, but, but keep preaching the gospel to them. Don't give up. Speak the word of life to them. And then finally, the conclusion of our sanctification. Look at these last two verses. They're, they're chilling. He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul uses the word if here. If you look at this same, almost same verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am already poured out. The difference between this verse and the next verse in, in 2 Timothy, his last letter that he writes that's inspired, he says, I might. This might be it. I'm in jail. He's writing this from Rome. Remember, he's in prison. He doesn't know. He could be, he could be executed. He could be let go and martyred by the Jews right away. They've already tried to kill him a number of times. He doesn't know, and he says, but if, if I'm to be poured out, and he uses an Old Testament, every Jew and even Greeks understood this. This is a poured out, this is an offering. They would put their animal sacrifice on the offering, heat the altar super hot, take wine or honey or, or water, most of the time it was wine, and they would pour it on there, and it would hit that hot altar, and it would go up in a, just in a, in a mist. And it was an offering to the Lord, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And Paul says, if I'm going to be this drink offering, poured out for the Lord Jesus Christ, I rejoice in your faith. Uh, isn't that endearing? He, he said, if this is it, if I never get to come see you, if I never get out of Rome, if they kill me now, I know I've offered my life for you on the sacrifice of your service for your faith. And he said, I want you to rejoice in this. In verse 2, he reiterates that you too, I urge you, rejoice that you can offer your faith to the Lord. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, do you offer your faith to the Lord? Is, that, is this your life that we've studied today or is this somebody else's life? So are you one that walks with the Lord whether you're in the presence of people or you're by yourself? What's your private life like? Do you offer yourself to the Lord? Do you believe he's working in you, that he's doing things greater than you can ask or think? Do you believe that? Do you believe God is in you, possessing you, working to his power to get you through things and to help you shine, to help you be blameless and innocent? And are you taking aim at the word of God? Are you holding on the word of God? That's the only way we'll get there. This is a challenging message, isn't it? Challenged me all week, kicked me all around my office several times. Made me confess and bend the knee and expose sin and all kinds of things when you study this. But it's good because we become stronger and we love the Lord more. Hey, don't run in vain. Don't run in vain. Rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray and sing. Father, thank you for a wonderful time in the word today. Lord, we can't wait to redo in a sense, the hallelujah chorus of you coming into Jerusalem. We'll get to do that. Revelation tells us that we will, Lord. We'll all be gathered there and we'll get to sing and it's not gonna be the end. It's gonna go on forever, Lord. And, and so, Lord, we look forward to your triumphal entry again someday, Lord, and we will be there and we will sing.
But Father, until that time comes, Lord, may we run the race, may we keep the faith, may we fight the fight, Lord. And may we allow you to work within us and give us strength to accomplish those things. Lord, bless Grace Bible Church. Bless everyone in this that makes up this church, that we would be ones who run for your glory. And we lean on you for your strength. And we allow you to work within us, Lord. We beg you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.